The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. The scripture for this morning is found in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. And if you have a, a Bible under the chairs, it's found on page 35. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you, and the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God's word. There's a lot of perks being a dad. Um, Obviously, it changes a lot of things. Uh, The Millers and the Goffs brought in the new year together, and I was remarking with Dale at some point about uh, just like, hey, this is who we are now. You know, we're... Uh, we, you know, we're hanging out with our kids and it's kind of crazy and, you know, not like ever bringing in a new year was ever really crazy with me. It was always pretty sedate affairs with Megan and I, but, you know, it's just, it changes a lot of things, but there are a lot of perks. Um, one of which is being able to uh, snuggle with my kids on the couch and watch cartoons together. That's definitely a perk, um, which, is, which is pretty awesome because, um, frankly, it really changes the scene if you... If, if you take a 38-year-old man in sweatpants on laying down on the sofa watching cartoons, like that guy's a bum. He's kind of a loser. But if you add a couple of kids and he's like snuggling with them, all of a sudden it's like cool daddy time. And I, I like it because cartoons are awesome, right? I mean, you don't have to like acknowledge it, but cartoons are really cool. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. If it was a channel that just had Looney Tunes looping over and over again, I would just, I would watch that channel all the time. Um, one of my favorites to watch with my kids is Phineas and Ferb. Anybody ever seen Phineas and Ferb? You can acknowledge that. 
A few, few of you? Okay. So if you haven't seen it yet, the, I'll just like lay the groundwork for you. Um, so Phineas and Ferb is about uh, these two brothers, Phineas and Ferb, and uh, it's summer vacation, and every day they have a plan, and they do this crazy invention in the backyard. It could be like a roller coaster or like a, a time-traveling machine or an elevator to the moon, and every, every day they make this, this like cool contraption, this cool invention, and it, they're like really smart, and their, their older sister tries to bust them, try to tell their parents what's going on, and she's foiled every, every time. She just, it just disappears out of their backyard every single time. Uh, but there's this sort of like shadow story going on inside this cartoon where they have, these two boys have a pet platypus, which is really bizarre in itself, and this pet platypus name is Perry. My, my goal from this sermon is that you guys will go home and watch this cartoon because I feel it is a very brilliant cartoon. But there's this, this platypus named Perry. And Perry, of course, is a secret agent. And he has an arch nemesis, and his name is, if you're keeping notes, his name is Heinz Doofenshmirtz, okay? And so Heinz is a, is a really funny character, but his, his plan every, every day or all, all the time is to is to conquer the tri-state area. He wants to rule the tri-state area. And Perry's job is to stop him every single time. Now, except one time. Perry will fight him and beat him up every time, but this little platypus, he can go crazy on this mad scientist. But this one time, Perry doesn't put up a fight at all. Uh, the, the Heinz plan, Doofenshmirtz's plan, is to, uh, is to conquer the tri-state area by this contraption that he's invented that causes everyone to make their New Year's resolution to serve him and to serve him alone. And Perry doesn't fight him. In fact, Perry sits there and watches Heinz shoot this contraption across the the Tri-State area, and the crazy thing is it works. At a stroke of midnight, everybody says, we are going to serve Heinz Doofusmerz and serve him alone. And they're repeating it, they're chanting it. And he's like, I won, I can't believe I won, and I can't believe Perry didn't even try to fight me. What is going on here? And then at 12.01, everybody starts ignoring him. They just start going back to whatever they were doing. And he's like, what is happening? Why aren't you guys serving me? And they're like, it's because, don't you know, nobody keeps their New Year's resolutions. And he's like, you knew this whole time, Perry. That's why you weren't fighting me. You knew there was a hole in my plan. But, like, that's, but we do it every year, right? Even, even like I hate New Year's resolutions, but I still find myself at New Year's trying to figure out what am I going to change into this new year. And it's always something that like, that's eludes us all the other times. So the Goffs and Millers, again, we were sitting around the table and the, we had the kids. I don't remember if it was a quiet moment if we had put them down or we had given them all Benadryl and gotten them all like, kind of drugged for a few minutes and we were just able to, to, to sit there and have a few quiet, that didn't really happen, or just have, have, have a few quiet moments for us to talk. And we we're like, hey, what's your good memories out of 2015 and what do you want to see in 2016? And of course, it's like, as we're going around the table, it's the same ones, right? Like, I want to eat better. I want to exercise. I'm actually, I was telling Dale this morning, I'm contemplating actually, I told myself I would never do two things. I would never buy a car new and I would never buy a piece of exercise equipment. And I'm at this very moment, I'm contemplating buying a piece of exercise equipment that I know is going to end up being a clothes hanger six months from now. But I'm thinking about it because it's the new year and it's a new start. We're going to be disciplined. We're going to eat better. We're going to exercise. Like this is what my life is going to be about going into the new year because there's just something about a new year. It gives you a chance to make a fresh start. 
It gives you a chance to, to stop what you're doing that you don't want to do anymore and to start afresh and anew. It's a, it's a clean break as we're going forward. The problem, though, with New Year's resolutions, and I'm going to try to keep mine, and I encourage you to try to keep yours, but the problem with them is that the reason that we don't keep them is because to really change requires thinking differently about something. It requires thinking and feeling different about something at the very core of our being. That's why we have trouble keeping them, whether it's starting that project we've been putting off. You know why you're not gonna do that project? Because you really don't care about it. No matter how many projects you have on your list, you don't really care about it enough to do it or you, we would have already done it. The reason that you and I, and I'm not saying there's no hope for the future, the reason you and I haven't changed the way that we're eating or exercising is because we really just don't care enough about it to actually make the changes going forward. But yet, we're allured by this call of the new year that we can be different, that we should be different, that this is our chance to get a clean break, to think differently about my life, about what I'm doing and what I should be doing with my life. Which is interesting that in this passage that Allison read for us, at the very beginning, the very first two verses of chapter 12, it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, now, by the way, this is, this is the climax so far in the book of Exodus. It may, some people say it's the climax in the whole Old Testament. It may be, in some ways, up until Jesus, the biggest climax in history. Like th- this, this moment is a huge moment. God's people have been enslaved for hundreds of years. Maybe somewhere around 400 years they've been slaves in Egypt. They haven't had freedom. They've had forced labor. They've been mistreated. And their cries have gone out to God. And God sends this man, Moses, back to Egypt where he was raised and was once a prince. He sends him back to Egypt in order to free his people. He goes to Pharaoh and successfully successively goes in front of him and says, hey, do this or God's gonna bring this terrible thing about. And there's nine plagues that happen and they progressively get worse and worse and worse. And yet each time, Pharaoh, even if he shows a moment like, yeah, I might do it, His heart gets hardened and he says, no, I'm not gonna do it. And every single time, nine plague, plague after plague after plague for nine plagues, Moses goes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh ends up ignoring Moses. And now this is the 10th plague that's coming. This is the big moment where God is going to free his people finally. After hundreds of years and generations of mistreatment and slavery, And as he begins this, this is what he tells Moses. I'm gonna change your calendar. Verse two, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. See, up until this point, it's it's interesting, up until this point, this is about the spring time of the year. Up until this point, most calendars would have begun begun in the fall because uh, uh, societies were agricultural based. And so you would work all year, and like the culmination of the year was the final harvest in fall. And then things would start back, go fallow for a while in the winter as you're preparing for the upcoming season. And so your whole year would begin in fall where you get the harvest. But now God throws the Hebrew calendar on his head, and he says, now before we go any further, I'm getting ready to free you. But here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna get a new calendar. 
It's gonna start here, and it's gonna start now. This is gonna be the first month of the year for you. Because God is getting ready to do something new for them, so new that it's gonna reorient their calendar. And as we begin this new calendar year, as we look forward to 2016 and thinking about what could and should be different, we're gonna see if this has any bearing on us as we go forward into this new year. We're gonna look at what God did to deliver his people so decisively that their calendar year would change. We're gonna see three things. We see how God changes their calendar. He lays it on its head. He begins a whole new year for them, a whole new existence for them by a new kind of terror, a new kind of feast, and a new kind of life. A new kind of terror, a new kind of feast, and a new kind of life. You see, excuse me, look at that. I'm a slop shekel. You guys know what a slop shekel is? It's a person who drops water all over the the little water holder behind him or drops food all over his shirt every time he eats, which is what I do. Now, the, the Egyptians have been mistreating the people of Israel for hundreds of years. Before we go forward, we have to, we have to, we have to deal with this fact. We have to accept this fact. We have to understand this fact. Sort of like the beginning of, uh, of the Christmas carol um, by Charles Dickens. It starts off by saying, well, first of all, you need to understand that Jacob Marley had been dead for years. He was cold and dead in the grave. Otherwise, nothing else that happens after this is gonna make much sense to you or carry much meaning to you. And unless we understand that the Egyptians had been mistreating God's people, the people of Israel, for, does, for hundreds of years and generation after generation after generation, then what's gonna happen now doesn't make a whole lot of sense. God's people have been enslaved and mistreated. To be a slave is a terrible thing. You don't own anything. You are owned by someone else. You don't get to determine what you do with your life. Where you go, what you're doing is determined by somebody else. Who you marry is probably determined by somebody else. What happens to your kids is probably determined by somebody else. Your life is expendable. That's why they would put them in construction jobs because construction has always been very risky and at this time in the ancient world, it would have been incredibly risky to build the great projects that Egypt had going on. Dozens of people would die on each project. And so you had to have people, you had to keep refilling the people and so you had to have lives that were pretty much expendable. And that's who the Israelites were. Year after year, generation after generation, they'd been mistreated and owned and misused by the people of Egypt. And Egypt continually refuses to let them go. As God gives them warning after warning after warning, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he says, I will not let them go. I will not let them go. I will not let them go. And finally, as God warned him from the very beginning, he said, even before the first plague, he said, Israel is my firstborn son. And if you don't let my firstborn son go, I will take yours. And warning after warning after warning, Pharaoh hears his heart is hardened, and now the final judgment has come. And God tells Moses, here's what's gonna happen. I am gonna come, and I am gonna deliver my people. There's not gonna be a battle that you guys are gonna fight. I'm gonna come in and fight the battle for you. 
and I'm gonna free the people. At midnight, the darkest part of the night, I will come through and I'm gonna kill every firstborn in every house. Now that sounds terrible, and it is. It's supposed to be a terrible, horrible judgment that's exacted on the people of Egypt. But the truth is there always has to be judgment paid for a wrong that's done. You and I know this. No matter how much in our society we should say that like, God should just be forgiving, we don't buy that. We know that judgment has to be made. There has to be justice for everything that's done. Think about it. Even in something little, like whatever you were thinking about uh, in the time where we had the time of confession where people have wronged you, when somebody does something wrong to you or you do something wrong to somebody else, you talk about them behind their back or uh, you take something from them or whatever the case may be, there's a choice that's happened. Okay, let's say one of those two, op- one of those two uh, things have happened. You've either talked about somebody behind their back or they've talked about you or something's been stolen. Now, you, if you've been wronged, you have two, you have two choices that you can make at that point. One, you can say, I'm going to do in kind to you what you did to me because there needs to be justice made. You, you, you said something about me, I'm gonna say something about you or I'm gonna say something to you that hurts you as much as it hurt me. If it hurts less, we're not even. If it hurts more, then it's going too far. We sort of had this sort of inner kind of weird justice kind of meter of what, what is, how far is too far and how far is not far enough. This is what I'll say about you. Or if you took something from me, I get to take something back from you in order to exact justice or judgment, to make, the, make it equal between us. That's one choice you have. Or you can choose, I'm not gonna enter into the retribution. But if you do and you forgive them, there's still a price being paid because you're absorbing the hurt that they put made to you whenever they talked about you behind your back. You're saying, I'm gonna just absorb that hurt. It doesn't make it hurt less. I'm just gonna take that hurt and I'm gonna, I'm gonna bear that hurt and not take it back out on them. I'm gonna bear that. Or somebody steals something from you, you can take something back from them or you can say, I'm going to absorb that loss and I'm gonna pay it instead of exacting it back from you. There's always justice. We have this inner sense that things aren't right until justice has been paid. No matter how much we want to think about a God who is simply forgiving, no matter what we've done, that's just not the way it works. If we had a a person who uh, raped or murdered multiple people and they stood in front of a judge and the judge said, you know what? I've talked with this person for hours and hours. They're really sorry. I'm going to let him go. We'd be crying in the streets. We'd want that judge taken off the bench. We'd want him fired. We'd want his, his judgment reversed and this person punished for what they've done because we have this inner sense that when something has been done wrong, there needs to be justice. And so when God says he's going to free his people after years of injustice that's been poured out upon them, years of slavery, years of mistreatment, he's gonna come in and a life is gonna be required from every household. Now, to you and me, that sounds, again, like that kind of sounds a little bit terrible because we think that uh, I might have done wrong, but that shouldn't be exacted from my kids or from my wife or from anybody else. But in this ancient culture, 
all the hopes of it. They didn't think individualistically. They thought as a family. You didn't think like, I'm going to rise to power. That's a very Western, a very American kind of thinking, very individualistic. You thought about your family, about your clan. You didn't want to bring dishonor upon your family. You wanted your family to rise in power. And so there's this idea that because all the hopes and dreams of every family rested upon the firstborn, all the power of the family passed passed to the firstborn, there was this concept in the ancient world that uh, it's the firstborn that bears the brunt of the punishment. So that's why when God talks to Pharaoh through Moses, he says, Israel is my firstborn. And if you don't free him, I will come in and take yours. So now God sets this plan in motion where he's gonna come in and take the life of every firstborn in Egypt. The temptation at this point is to wonder about the nature and character of God or to at least call him in a question to think like, man, God is a pretty mean God. But he's a just God. Everything that's done wrong has to be paid for. There has to be justice made. And the true wonder in this passage isn't that God executes judgment upon the people of Egypt. The true wonder is that God had any forbearance at all. The fact that when Adam and Eve first sinned, that God didn't wipe everything clean. That even after Noah and the world starts to roll again and things are still terrible, that God doesn't just wipe it all out. If you think about not just past history, but you think about your life and my life, the fact that we breathe at all is God's forbearance to us. God is a good, holy, and just God, and we run, about, run around like ungrateful kids doing our own thing, whatever seems right in our own eyes. Saying, God, you don't have the right to tell me how I should live my life. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. Ungrateful children to our creator, God. And the fact that he doesn't wipe us all off or hasn't wiped civilization off the face of the earth is his loving forbearance. That's what Peter said. He says, God is waiting and waiting and waiting, showing long-suffering and goodness and mercy to us for each breath that we draw. The wonder isn't that bad things happen to people. The wonder is that any good thing happens at all to people who are so ungrateful. A lack of judgment is a lack of justice. No matter how long God forbears, justice has to be made. But one of the really That's not really even the craziest thing in this passage. The craziest thing in this passage isn't that God's gonna bring judgment upon the people of Egypt. If you've been reading the story, like that's expected at this part. What's crazy in this part of the story is that the Hebrews aren't exempt. That God says that whenever he comes to exact judgment in the land of Egypt, that even the Israelites are in danger. because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are guiltless. 
There are some, that, some of us in this room and some in history that have done worse things and some that have lived better lives, but we are all on the wrong side of the ledger. You might be minus 100,000 or minus 10, but we're still on the wrong side. And for God to hold back his forbearance and let his judgment, his roll across the land of Egypt and bring death upon the firstborn, it was going to affect everyone who fell on the wrong side of the ledger. And by the way, as just as a side note, as unjust as it may seem that God should take any life to us as our American kind of Western sort of thinking about it, the truth is you and I can shield our kids from a lot of things. We can shield our kids. You can work hard and you can provide your kids education. You can work hard to provide your kids. Uh, you can become rich and provide for them the rest of their life. But there's two things you can't deliver your children from, and that's suffering and death. It comes to all of us. It's our lot as human beings. It's God for, God's forbearance that keeps it from coming at all. The Jews weren't exempt. God says, if my destroyer comes through, if I come in and bring justice to the land of Egypt, it's not only gonna fall on the, your Egyptian captors, but it's gonna fall on you as well. Because we are all sinful, but the people of Israel, we know that not only are we all sinful, but the people of Israel, they had, as they've been in the land of Israel, they have adopted, uh, land of Egypt, they've adopted Egyptian ways. We know that because later on we see uh, in Joshua that he addresses the gods that they've been worshiping that they've now brought with them even through the wilderness. We see it uh, we see it right after they're delivered and Moses goes up, we're gonna see later on in the book, as Moses goes up on the mountain, they melt down all this gold. They're taken out of, out of Egypt and they build a giant golden calf that they decide they're gonna worship. They had learned that in the land of Egypt. They had idols that they had been worshiping instead of the one true God. And so for the Jews not to die on this night of terror, this night of judgment, this night of justice, for them to be protected a covering was needed. He said, look, even though you're my people, you're no better than the Egyptians. You're all on the wrong side of the ledger. And if you wanna be protected, I'm gonna provide a protection for you that will cover you. So you're gonna take a lamb, a spotless lamb, which is in itself is unusual and interesting because really there's no difference between a spotted lamb, a lamb that has minor blemishes on its coat or its body on how it tastes. No difference. He's setting them up and he's, as he's instituting this Passover meal, this first Passover that they'll celebrate at the beginning of every year, the beginning of every year, the beginning of every year for dozens and hundreds of years going forward. As he sets that in motion, he's saying, you are sinful and you need someone who is sinless and spotless to provide a covering for you, to pay for what you cannot pay for yourself outside of, of your life. A covering was needed. And so he said, you take a spotless lamb and you're gonna take that lamb and then you're gonna, on the 10th day of the month, and then you're gonna bring him into your house, into your house for four days. Now, what happens in those four days? 
That lamb's in your house. What does that lamb become? It becomes a pet. The kids are in there with a fluffy, cute little lamb or goat, a year old, exactly a year old, because this is about the, this time of year that the, the babies were born, so it would be almost exactly a year old. You bring him to the house for four days. You feed the lamb. You care for the lamb. You keep, make sure it stays spotless, without blemish. And the kids are gonna love this lamb. And then on the 14th day of the month, four days after you bring the lamb into your house, you're gonna take the lamb outside and all of Israel together are gonna kill a lamb for each household. So at that point, the kids are gonna be asking, Dad, why? Why are we doing this? And he's gonna say, God's gonna deliver us. Well, the deliverance is coming through justice and judgment. And if we don't wanna be included in that, we have to kill this lamb. And he says, you collect the blood, and then you take that blood, and over on the doorposts, and on top of each door, you're gonna put that blood. And he said, this is really interesting, because if God's coming through, he doesn't actually have to look at each door to see if there's stuff there, right? I mean, God knows everything that's going on in the universe at any given point without even expressing any energy to do so. He says two things. He says, one, it will be a sign to you over your household, a sign of faith in me that, when, that I'm going to deliver you and I won't execute justice and judgment upon you and your household. You're going to cover. A covering was needed to protect them. And not only was a covering needed, but a substitute was needed. You, would, you know who would have been on, everyone would have been on pins and needles after Moses tells them what's going to happen here. But you know who's really on pins and needles? They're firstborn of each house. Because whether you believe God is going to do what he's getting ready to do or not, you're just wondering. Dad, did you put enough? Like whenever he's painting it on the side of the door and on the top, like, did God, Dad, did God say how much had to go on there? Do we, we need to paint the whole thing? Do we need to go up and pour it over the roof? Like, what do we need to do here? Do I need to, what needs to happen? He says, God, this is son, this is what God said to do. Over the top and on the sides of the door. That night in the darkest of the night, without dramatizing it too much. Perhaps there were cries of loss around their Egyptian neighbors. Maybe you felt the presence come through. But however it happened, you're sitting there wondering, is it enough? Because every house, either the firstborn died or the lamb died. Somebody died. That's what God saw whenever he passed by the house. He said, a death has already paid for the sins of this household. Now I'll pass by. A covering was needed and a substitute was needed for each. So not only was there a new kind of terror, but there was a new kind of feast that God instituted here. So in the midst of this, he said, I'm gonna free my people. It's interesting that God says, as I'm gonna free my people and this judgment is gonna come through, here's what you're gonna do in the middle of this, of this judgment. You're gonna have a feast. 
Isn't that weird? He says, you're gonna have a feast, but it's gonna be a different kind of feast. You're gonna take that lamb and you're gonna roast it. One of the reasons for roasting it, they wouldn't, that wouldn't be unusual in itself. But one of the, 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 re, the way he's setting up the whole feast, you're gonna roast it. You're not gonna cut it into parts. You're gonna leave it as a whole. Uh, by the way, uh, I, some of the research I said it, even though it says uh, the wording there, it doesn't mean they would have left all the entails and stuff inside. It just means it was a whole lamb they would have put together probably over the spit. You're gonna roast this lamb whole, with the lamb that you're gonna serve, it's not gonna be like a Thanksgiving dinner where you have the mashed potatoes and the gravy and all this. You're gonna have bitter herbs. And with the bitter herbs, you're gonna have unleavened bread, which would have been, actually the, the lamb and the bitter herbs wouldn't have been a too big departure from what may be normal fare for them. The unleavened bread would have been a huge departure. You're basically having crackers with this meal. Why? Because he's saying you don't have time you don't have time to, why, why can't they boil the meat? Because you're gonna have to clean the pots. He's saying, I'm gonna deliver you tonight. And your way to show faith in my deliverance for you is that you're gonna eat a meal like I'm getting ready to send you straight out of Egypt. You may have been here for hundreds of years. You may have been here for generation after generation. You may have been oppressed. The nine previous plagues may not have worked, but this one I'm telling you is gonna work. He's gonna send you out of the land and you need to be ready. So you're gonna prepare a meal that you don't have to clean up afterwards. You're not even gonna keep the food for the next day. Only have enough food for your household. If, you, if a lamb is too much for your household, you bring another household in. You don't leave any left, and if some is left, don't keep it for breakfast the next morning. Burn it, get rid of it. You're gonna eat bitter herbs. You're gonna eat unleavened bread because you don't have time to, do, to deal with leaven. You don't even have time to let it rise. And here's how you're gonna eat it. You're gonna stand up and eat it. You're gonna keep your belt fastened and a staff in one hand. Any given moment, God's gonna deliver us and send us out of here. And so everything they were doing was an act of faith and worship to their God, saying you are the God that you say that you are. Not only can nothing be left for the next day, but everyone in the house has to consume it. This is a feast for everyone. No one's exempt. I was thinking about it as a, they probably didn't have to deal with this as much because they weren't as spoiled, but I was thinking about this as a, as a dad with my kids who are sometimes picky eaters. Can you imagine sitting around the table like, no, you're gonna eat the bitter herbs. You're gonna eat the bitter herbs. You have to eat this tonight. I know, I know, the, the, I know, the, I know the bread is dry. You've got to eat this. Understand me, you've got to get, at least get something in your mouth tonight because God said to do this. It's a meal Nothing can be left the next, next day, but it has to be consumed by everyone in the house. And it's not a meal to be enjoyed over time. It's a meal to be eaten in haste with your belts fastened, with your sandals on, with your staff in your hand, ready to leave at any given moment. Imagine that. They've been slaves and it's been terrible, but this is the only life that they've known. And now God is saying, this night is gonna happen and you're not gonna have time to leisurely pack up your house and get everything together, you're gonna look, go right now. It was a new kind of terror. It was a new kind of feast that was starting a new kind of life. And that's why God is saying your, your new new year 
is going to be now. Because your life, your existence as a person, your existence as a community, your existence as a nation is going to happen tonight. It's going to be marked by this, by what the wonder that I'm doing in your midst is going to mark a new kind of life for you. Afterward, each year it was to begin by recalling and reenacting their salvation that was enacted by God on their behalf. They're going to begin every year by remembering and recalling how God delivered them. We're gonna talk about that in a couple of weeks, but how at the very beginning, as he is delivering them, he says, teach this to your kids. At the end of, of uh, the, the passage, actually uh, past the passage that uh, Allison read in 1226, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. They're, they're gonna reenact their salvation and they're, because their salvation had been twofold. Number one, they had been passed over by death. They were delivered, first of all, that night while God's justice and judgment rolls to the land of Egypt, requiring a firstborn of every house. But yet their houses where a lamb had been sacrificed and the blood over the doorpost and the feast had by those inside, he says, I will pass over those houses. That's the first deliverance. The second deliverance is that by that very justice that he delivers them from by the blood, they were gonna be freed from their slavery, from their bondage. Egypt was going to require that they leave. Pharaoh's heart was finally gonna be turned so that he would say, not just say, hey, get out of here, but he's gonna send you out. He's gonna push you out. Before, earlier in the, in the book, it says he's gonna push you out by a mighty hand. The mighty hand of Egypt is gonna stop clutching them tight. It's gonna send them out. They've been passed over by death and they've been freed from slavery. And the reason they had to keep this feast every year going forward as they began each year, was because they had to learn a life of freedom. They had been slaves all their lives for generation and generation. They didn't know how to think for themselves anymore. They didn't know how to serve their God, the one true God anymore. They had to learn this kind of new kind of life. And this Passover would be celebrated at the beginning of each year Year after year after year after year after year after year until one night Jesus would sit down with his disciples to a Passover meal. So all that I've been describing would have happened with Jesus. He sits there with the unleavened bread and the wine and he stands up to lead this Passover meal with them, which would have, they would have understood immediately as Jesus stands up to lead them that he's taken the position of the father, of the leader of this household. And he stands up, and they, but he would have flabbergasted them with the first thing that he says. Because this bread that they have been celebrating for hundreds of years, for ever, each year, this unleavened bread, that tasted dry in your mouth 
had been their bread of affliction. It had remind, served as a reminder to each generation of the slavery that they had been delivered from. It was the bread of their affliction. And when Jesus stood up and he broke it, he changed the whole meaning when he said, this bread is my body, broken for you. I am the bread of your affliction. I am the unleavened bread, the bread with no leaven, leaven representing sin in their lives. I am the unleavened bread without any hint of sin who have been broken for you. He takes the cup and he passes it around and says, this is the blood of my the new covenant which has been shed for you. Not the, not the, the lamb over the lintel and on the doorposts. This is the blood that will cover you and cause death to pass over. But then something would have been off to the disciples. They would have noticed it before now, but it would have been keenly aware of it at this moment because they're looking around on the table. There's no lamb. There's no lamb. There's no mention of any of the counts of there being a lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table with them. He was standing before them, leading them in the Passover, saying, this is why death will pass you over. Now, because hundreds of years, little lambs have been, have been slain and the blood collected, because I am offering my body freely and readily to be broken. I'm offering my blood freely and readily to be spilled, to cover you. I am your substitute for death. And I am your covering to protect you. This provides for us, you and I sitting in this room, it provides for us not a start of a new year as it did for the Jews. It provides for us a start of a new life. Your life is begun anew at Christ's death, his propitiation, his expiation on your behalf of your sins. Your payment, your covering, propitiation, your payment and expiation, your covering above you for your sins. It's not just a fresh start, but it's a new life. And it's there in that moment for you and I, that you and I are granted the, the ability, not just for the opportunity to change, is what the new year provides us, is what, right? It provides us a clean break from the prior year and going into a new year provides us an opportunity to change, but it's that sacrifice on our behalf that provides for us the ability to change. What were we delivered from as the 
Jews were, had a twofold salvation. They'd been passed over by death and they were freed from slavery. What were we delivered from? We were delivered from bondage to sin. The Jews were slaves, were in bondage in Egypt, but you and I are by nature in bondage to sin. No matter how much we want to change, we cannot change ourselves. What were we delivered from? We were delivered from a terrible judgment because we are all on the wrong side of the ledger. But we weren't just delivered from things. What were we delivered to? We were delivered to the almighty God. I love this section in here when he says, when he's speaking to Moses and he says, I am the Lord. That means I am the almighty Lord. I will do this. And that's who you and I are delivered to. Because as God is calling his people out, his his Jews out of Egypt to be his special people, he has called you out of your former life to be his special son. For you to be his firstborn. We're delivered to the almighty God and we're delivered to a new community. Notice that with the Jews, no one was alone. No one celebrated Passover alone. You were always with a household. And you and I have been delivered to a new household, a new community. We were delivered to the almighty God, to a new community, no one being alone. And you and I, the late born, have become the firstborn by the firstborn. He came, the the firstborn of God, the son of God, the only begotten son of God. He came, gave his life up so that we might have the same rights and privileges that he has. So as we begin this new year, let's begin the excitement. Let's begin pondering this new life has begun in our hearts. For some of us, it was a long time ago. For some of us, recent. Maybe you're in this room and it hasn't happened to you. Let the beginning of this 2016, as you place your faith and trust in the lamb who was slain on your behalf, be the new beginning for us. And let us think about how this Lamb who was slain for us provides for us not just an opportunity to change, but by his death on our behalf, provides us the ability to change by his indwelling Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for this new 2016, this new year. As we begin this year, I pray that we would uh, that are all the things that we hope to, to be, how we hope to be different, the things that we hope to change. Father, I pray that this morning that um, we begin afresh in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, the great lamb slain for us. As we get ready to celebrate that meal together in the name of Jesus.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.